So, have you ever done something wrong? You've hurt someone, you have messed up big time, and you would do anything to take it back. You would do anything to make it okay. You would do anything to do something about that guilt. Well, that is how Rodrigo Mendoza felt. Mendoza was a slave trader in Paraguay in South America in the 1700s, at least according to the plot of the 1986 film The Mission. Mendoza was played by Robert De Niro. And in a fit of rage over a woman, Mendoza had uh, challenged his own brother to a duel and had killed him. And he is so overcome with guilt that he asks a Jesuit priest, um, it is Father Gabriel, who's played by Jeremy Irons, what he can do to atone for this, this horrible thing that he has done. And Father Gabriel has an idea. He invites Mendoza to become a novice in the Jesuit order. But not only that, but to join him in his mission to the Guarani people high in the Paraguayan Andes. Mendoza agrees, but for him, it's not quite enough. So he adds one more stipulation. He says he will do it, but as a penance, as a way for him to deal with his guilt, he will drag all of his armor, all of his weapons in a big net all the way up into the Andes to the place where the Guaranis live, as we see in this video clip. Sin, you see, for as much as we try to sugarcoat it, is a problem. It is complex. It is deep. It is not easy to get rid of. And that's why in the Old Testament, God provided his people with a concrete and practical way to deal with sin. And I'm talking about the system of sacrifices that God reveals to the people of Israel at Sinai through Moses. So if you've been here during Lent, you know that we're looking at the prequel to the resurrection. I talked two weeks ago like about the Star Wars prequel. Well, this is the prequel to the story that we're going to celebrate in a few weeks, the story of Good Friday and the story of Easter. And I'm convinced that by looking at the, at the prequel, we will understand our story as Christians so much better. So two weeks ago, we talked about Exodus. Last week, Kurt preached about covenant. This morning, we're going to think about sacrifice, and we're going to do something that Protestants rarely do. We're going to take a somewhat sympathetic approach to the Old Testament system of sacrifice. We're going to do something that Protestants do even less frequently. We are going to read the book of Leviticus. It's that book that no one ever reads, and we skip over it. Well, in the passage that I'm about to read, like I said, it takes place at Mount Sinai. And of course, there are the Ten Commandments, but there was a whole lot of other stuff that God gave Moses at Mount Sinai. This whole book of Leviticus is, is part of that. And Moses is going to be talking about Aaron, but Aaron is really just a stand-in. Aaron stands for all of the high priests that Israel will have generation after generation. And the ritual that Moses is describing is what we know as Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. Now, the ritual, as you'll find out, involves two goats and a bull. 
And this is the source, in fact, of the English idiom scapegoat. This is where we get our word scapegoat. And what Aaron is supposed to do, what the high priest is supposed to do, is cast lots, basically throw some dice on the two goats. And one of those goats is going to get sacrificed along with the bull as a sin offering. I'll talk about that in a bit, as a sin offering for all of Israel, for the whole nation. The other goat is going to be freed at the end of the ritual. Again, freed on behalf of the entire nation. So I invite you into the unfamiliar book of Leviticus and into the even more unfamiliar world of Old Testament sacrifice. This is from Leviticus 16. Aaron shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the curtain. This is into the holy of holies. And he shall sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Thus, he shall make atonement for the sanctuary because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so shall he do for the tent of meeting which remains with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one shall be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the sanctuary until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement on its behalf and shall take some of the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat and put it on each of the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it. And hallow it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. When he has finished atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and sending it away into the wilderness by means of someone designated for the task. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a barren region, and the goat shall be set free in the wilderness. What do you think? If you find this whole scene a bit bit baffling, perplexing, maybe even a little unsettling, you are not alone. I would say that most Christians, and I would even include most modern Jews, find these descriptions difficult and more than a little bit alien to their own life of faith. But what you heard described just now is actually something that happened, something that took place throughout the entire history of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, from Sinai, 1200 B.C., around there, all the way through to 70 A.D., with just a 70-year break, This was a daily reality in the temple in Jerusalem. And that means it was a daily reality during the life of Jesus. And like I said, I want to attempt a somewhat sympathetic approach to this whole idea of sacrifice because I think it is often misunderstood. It's often explained as as a way to mollify the terrible anger and wrath of the Old Testament God. I want to flip that this morning. And suggests that a better way to think about it is as God's gift of love for his people in a particular season, at a particular time in the story of his covenant with them. It is, in fact, a concrete, practical way for the people of God to mend the brokenness of sin. 
to repair the very real fractures that sin creates inside a person within the covenant community and with our relationship to God. So, again and again, throughout the Old Testament, Scripture insists that God does not need a sacrifice. And there were neighboring cultures that talked about God, God needing this for sustenance or nutrition. Scripture again and again says that's not the case. No, this instead is God's gift to the people because they needed a practical way to atone. We're going to use that word a lot this morning, atone. It has a remarkable etymology. King James translators were trying to translate Leviticus, and they came to this word kapar in the Old Testament in Hebrew, and they needed an English word, and they actually invented one. And this is actually true. This is not just a folk etymology. They combined two words, at and one, and invented the English word atone. Because sacrifice provided a way to again become at one with God and at one with with the community by offering something of great value to restore that relationship. Sometimes it was grain, and that's called a cereal offering. You'd be, be bring grain from your harvest. Often, though, it was an animal, and this is the part that we are likely to shudder a little bit at. But I want to point out first some cultural differences between 21st century American culture and ancient culture. First, for pastoral nomads, for herding people, an animal from the flock is just a unit of wealth. It's like a $100 bill. Their herd, you see, was their bank account. It was their IRA. It was their 529. And giving an animal to God from your herd was a powerful symbol. The other thing, the other reality, is the extent to which in the 21st century, in our culture, we are insulated from the process of how we get that Big Mac. We don't really know, most of us. We're happy to eat the Big Mac, and we're happy to remain blissfully ignorant of how it actually got there. That was not the case in the ancient world. You likely were doing your own slaughter of the meat that you were eating. But what might surprise you, and I know this surprised me when I discovered it, is that most, not all, but most of the sacrifices that were given in ancient Israel were actually a meal. The real deal was it was a meal. It was a ritual meal with the gathered family, sort of like our Thanksgiving. So to explain this, I want to geek out a little bit here with some Old Testament stuff, and I want to do a real quick description of three different categories of sacrifice in the Old Testament. The first is the word shalom. We know that word from our November series. Shalom basically means wholeness, sometimes it's peace or abundance, and a shalom sacrifice was voluntary. It wasn't scheduled, it wasn't required, you just did it spontaneously, and you say, hey priest, I'm going to come in and give a shalom offering. And people would do it for three reasons, as shown in scripture. One is just free will. It's just, oh my gosh, I love God, I want to give God a shalom sacrifice. Sometimes it was votive, it was asking for something. Maybe a sick family member or maybe a crop that you're worried about, you would give a shalom offering as a way of asking God for something. And then when that is granted, it can be an offering of thanksgiving. It's going to be, oh my gosh, God, um, my wife got well. I'm so grateful. I just want to give you a shalom offering. Here's how it would work. You would invite your whole extended family You would travel to Jerusalem or at other times in the Old Testament, Bethel or Shiloh, wherever there was a temple, 
and you would bring with you a prized, unblemished animal from the herd, and the priest would slaughter it ritually there at the altar. And the altar is outside of the temple. It's in front of the temple. The priest would ritually slaughter it there. He would burn the fat, and he would burn most of the internal organs, and he would take a portion for himself. The priest would get a portion, and that's the part of it that I like the best. (laughs) The rest of the animal, though, would be eaten by the whole family at a feast, except it was a very worshipful feast. In fact, at certain times in the Old Testament story, this was the only way that people would ever eat meat. You wouldn't eat meat profanely. You would never eat it just at home. You would only eat meat, and in that economy, it would only be a few times a year. You would only eat it at the temple as part of a shalom sacrifice. That's one category. Another category that gets mentioned is the most holy sacrifice. Sometimes it's called a sin offering. And this is more costly It is more costly to the person giving the sacrifice because it has to do with sin. And so in this case, you would give up that animal entirely. You wouldn't bring the family along for a feast. Again, it can be grain, it can be an animal, it can be brought by an individual, or it can be brought by the whole whole community, if the whole community wants to repent of sin. And it can be brought for any breach of the commandments. Of course, we think of the Ten Commandments, that there are a whole lot more. There are commandments about how to treat other people, how to treat yourself, how to treat your community. There are moral and ethical commandments. And if you had a sense that you had broken one of these, you would bring grain or an animal. And in the case of an animal, you would put your hand on that animal's head, which symbolically would transfer the sin that you had done onto that animal. And the priest would ritually slaughter that animal on the altar and burn part of it, but burn part of it and sometimes all of it, depending on the circumstances, but only the priests would eat and they would only eat it in the temple precincts. Okay, there's two categories. The third is, is the burnt offering, sometimes called the whole burnt offering. And this is the most serious and intense of the offerings. Again, it can be grain or it can be animal. And sometimes this depends on your income, that a a poorer family would bring, bring grain and a more wealthy family would bring an animal. But in this case, the entire gift, the entire sacrifice was burned on that altar as a sacrifice to God. And nobody got to eat any of it. And there were actually daily whole burnt offerings as long as the temple stood. For all of those centuries, priests would do daily whole burnt offerings. And in addition to that, there would be offerings that individuals would bring when they're convinced of really, really serious wrongdoing. Rodrigo Mendoza would have brought a whole guilt or a whole burnt offering. Now, What Moses is describing in this passage from Leviticus is a specific annual ritual of sacrifice that would take place on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur. And it involves two sin offerings. There is a bull, and the bull actually is meant to represent the high priest and his family. And so he'd sacrifice that bull, which would cleanse and atone himself and make him able to do the next thing, which was to offer the goat on behalf of all of Israel. And my hunch is that you found this thing that Moses describes, this thing about the blood, about sprinkling it seven times on the Holy of Holies and then on the altar, just a bit odd. Am I right? Like, what is this? What is going on? 
Well, strange as it seems, this sprinkling of blood is understood to wash or to cleanse that altar. I don't think for us we would think of that as washing and cleansing. But it was thought to cleanse and to purify all of the furniture that was in the Holy of Holies. And in there, there is an incense burner and there is the Ark of the Covenant. And the Holy of Holies is understood as the place where God sits enthroned. It is the place in the community where God's presence is thought to be most intense. And then the blood was also used to cleanse the altar, which was outside of the Holy of Holies, outside of the temple in front of it. And interestingly, this is the only time all year that anyone would enter the Holy of Holies, that the high priest would go in to cleanse it. It needed an annual cleansing. And believe it or not, blood was thought to scour people's sin. Blood was conceived as containing the mystery of life itself, that it is the substance that is most close to God, and it's the only thing that can scour people's sins from the place of God's presence. Now, all of this is unfamiliar to us in so many ways. It's messy, if you imagine this. It is messy, it's unsettling, but what I want to do is pause for a moment and highlight what I think are some rather profound elements in this whole system of sacrifice. And I think they are elements that we are going to recognize as part of our own experience too. And I think we'll be curious and intrigued how this system of sacrifice took care of those particular elements. All right. The first is that sin and the consequences of sin are more complex. They are deeper than we can fathom. Find yourself asking, well, can't just God declare sin null and void? Can't he just snap his fingers and it's gone? Well, the biblical answer seems to be no. The brokenness of sin is so profound that even God must accept its consequences and that God must provide some way for those consequences to be paid. Do I fully understand this? Not at all. It is a deep mystery. But do you see what is being acted out in this sacrifice ritual? God doesn't cause the consequences of sin, but God does stand with his people in the messiness and the intractability of sin. So, sin is complex. Second, sin is communal. Sin isn't just an individual issue because as human beings, we really aren't just individuals. We are part of various communities. All Israel is represented in these two goats. And what that means is that even if each person in all of Israel during the year went in and they did their own individual sin offerings, even so, each year on the Day of Atonement, they would still need to do this sacrifice for all of Israel. And what I see going on here is an acknowledgement that our actions affect one another in complex and unpredictable ways. And you probably know this. Each of us is part of a family, and we know how a mistake that we make can ripple through the family. It can ripple through neighborhoods. It can ripple through a business and through a church. And I think that is the real message of this annual Day of Atonement and the... uh, the ritual that happens with the blood. A Jewish Old Testament scholar named Jacob Milgram actually has a three-volume, about a 1,000 pages each, commentary on Leviticus. 
And believe it or not, it is excellent. It is really interesting. But he has this, this conception, he has this idea that during the year, the sin of the people is sort of like this floating miasma there in the community, that it's just floating in the air, and some of that goo kind of settles on the Ark of the Covenant, and it settles in the Holy of Holies. Even though no one is even in there all year, this, this miasma of sin kind of collects. Well, what a picture of what sin does to us as God's people. We experience this too. Sin clogs up and it builds up our communal connection to God. It affects one another. And finally, sin is costly. Because the consequences of sin are deep and complex, and because the consequences are communal, any solution to sin won't be simple, it won't be pain-free or trivial. Atonement, at one is always difficult and costly. And we know this, we know this in our own relationships. Think of an important relationship in your life that has been torn. It is often costly to mend that relationship. It has a price in pride, it has a price in our own self-righteousness, it has a price in our own comfort. It is hard to mend relationships. Well, that's even more so in our relationship with God. The sacrifice system acknowledges that mending our relationship with God is costly. So costly that in the Old Testament logic, it required blood, this prized source of life itself. All right, I bet even after that quick tour through the sacrifice system that none of you are going to show up with a bull or a goat next Sunday, that you're probably not ready to sign up for this again. But I wonder, can you see that this whole system of sacrifice is really less about God's angry wrath than it is about God's deep, deep love for his people, love that understands the complex pain and brokenness of sin, love that longs to lead people through that costly road to healing. Well, the biblical witness is that this system worked mostly. It worked mostly. I think that through the sacrifice system, many of God's people over many generations discovered healing They discovered restored relationships with themselves and with others and to a great extent with God. But, but it was always, as I think it was designed to be by God, temporary. Every transgression meant another trip to the temple. Every year meant Yom Kippur. The communal sins had to again be washed away by blood. And I have a feeling that even then there was a vague, inchoate sense that this abiding awareness of distance from God, that all of the goats and sheeps and bull in Israel could not completely and finally bridge. And so the question is, what would it be like to finally catch up? What would it be like to find a once and for all atonement, a once and for all sacrifice, which would discover true and permanent forgiveness, to be free from the bondage of guilt forever. What if there was a sacrifice that was so absurdly costly, so without blemish, so mind-bogglingly perfect 
that it would atone once and for all, not just for sins, plural, but for sin itself. Well, if you studied ancient history, you know that many neighboring cultures, most of the great cultures, had animal and grain sacrifice. It is a religious practice found in most cultures throughout history and in some cultures today. But the idea that God himself, out of a love beyond any comprehension, would himself become the sacrifice victim is without precedent or parallel. I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul says to the Romans in the New Testament. This is Romans 3, 21 through 26, as translated in the message. But in our time, something new has been added. What Moses and the prophets witnessed all those years has happened. God's, the, the God setting things right that we read about has become the Jesus setting things right for us. And not only for us, but for everyone who believes in him. For there's no difference between us and them in this since we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners, both us and them, and we've proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us. God did it for us. Out of sheer generosity, he put us in right standing with himself, a pure gift. He got us out of the mess we're in and restored us to where he always wanted us to be. And he did it by means of Jesus Christ. God sacrificed Jesus on the altar of the world to clear that world of sin. Having faith in him sets us in the clear, God decided on this course of action in full view of the public to set the world in the clear with himself through the sacrifice of Jesus, finally taking care of the sins he had so patiently endured. This is not only clear, but it is now. This is current history. God sets things right, and he makes it possible for us to live in his righteousness. I don't know what guilt you are carrying behind you in a net this morning. I don't know what pain, what regret, what self-loathing, what anger, what fear. And I don't know in what ways you have tried to atone, maybe by sacrificing your own joy or sacrificing the joy of those around you. But I do know this. You don't have to do that. That altar... That altar of your life has been filled for the final time and it lies broken forever. And I can't claim to tiredly, totally understand this, but I know it to be the truth. And that is in Christ, God has paid for your sins. In Christ, God has paid for your sins. And the resurrection is the proof that that deep complexity of sin is broken forever. And so if you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to hear this, that God in Christ has taken that knife and has cut that rope and has cut you free from that burden forever. And it has tumbled down the mountain and fall, fallen in the lake. God has set you free. You don't have to carry that burden and God has made you free to step into entirely new life. Amen.